Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we discuss the SEIU's stunning win over local nursing home owners, the comical coup in Venezuela, and the continuing fallout from the pandemic. All this plus the Trump Diaries, Size Matters, and AWCYFM, only on the Lumpen Week in Review from May 15, 2020. Mario Smith chatted with Greg Kelly from the SEIU on their successful drive to make Illinois nursing homes safer for workers and patients. Kelly talks about the devastation COVID-19 has wrought in nursing homes, how workers lacked even basic protections, and why unions are so important now. News from the Service Entrance airs every Thursday at 2 p.m. Joining us on Skype is a good friend of mine, and if you guys have been paying attention to the news and watching these pressers and, and other events, you've seen him. Greg Kelly is joining us. Greg is the newly elected president of SEIU, and for the uninitiated, SEIU is the Service Employees International Union. Greg is the first African-American president of the SEIU, and he joins us here on news from the service entrance with myself, Jamie Trecker, apparently George Blaze, Michaela, and <laughs> what's up, Greg? How you doing, man? Doing good. Not talking to you. This not is not. You. This is, the problem, this is the problem with working from home, is that everybody wants to be on the radio. Sorry, America. Um, That's George Blaze. Greg, good to see you again. Good to see you, too. It is good to see you, man. Well, um, I, um, first of all, before we talk about what you so my, managed to... Mario, I have to correct you. I've been president for uh, just about three years now. Why does everything keep saying newly elected? Yeah, yeah. We we need to get the your, you know what get your team and tell them let's get on let's fix it work on that work on it now before I have to reintroduce you. Um, Greg, it's your entire team's fault, not Mario, for not understanding right. how Google works. Never, um, Mario. You need to fire your whole staff. And that's right. Replace everyone. The They're the problem. Although although I'm sure I know a couple of people on your staff. Don't replace them. They're all great. Um, <laughs> Before we talk about your triumph of, of, the, of a week ago with, with the union and uh, particularly the frontline workers and stuff, um, I'm, I'm curious as to how you and SEIU are navigating through um, what is arguably the most profound moment any of us have ever lived through. How, how are you, first of all, how are you holding up and how are you navigating SEIU and, and all these hardworking men and women through this moment. Yeah, so so it's up and down. Uh, every day is something new and different. It changes sometimes even within the hour. Uh, I would just say, so I'm president of SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, Missouri, and Kansas. And our uh, jurisdiction is healthcare workers in those four states, uh, nursing homes, healthcare, uh, hospitals, uh, home care and child care. Um, we have about 90,000 members. Most of our members are people of color and the majority of them are women. Um, and they work as nursing assistants. They work um, at hospitals as janitorial workers or housekeepers um, and, and are child care providers in the state of Illinois. Um, a combination of uh, private industry as well as public sector uh, employers. Um, and I have to say, it's it's been challenging. I think, you know, you mentioned some of the stuff we did in the last week, but 
as I tell people every time I talk to them, COVID-19 just only sort of exposed the challenges uh, that the folks that I'm charged with representing have been dealing with for a long time, right? The mm -hmm. visibility of black workers who are on the uh, lower end of, of the wage scale is a problem that America has been dealing with for a long time, certainly long before COVID-19 came along. And it's only made things worse, made things a lot more complicated. Um, and it's a challenging moment, but I, think I can not express enough that our union is needed now more than ever before. Um, the amount of engagement that our members have just to find out what's going on, right? Or hear about how they connect and connect with each other um, has been off the charts. Um, it's been different. We're not congregating in groups, but we're making the best of the technology. You know, we're not using Skype, uh, but I've lost, we've probably done a hundred teletown halls, if not more. Mm. Uh, and so it's it's so it's it's challenging, but I, I you know the need for our organization or for any organization seems more important now than ever before, and I think our members feel that. Um, but it's it's very it's very challenging. No way, no two ways about it. When you hear about states ready to reopen, um, Indiana among them, what is your initial reaction? It, it, uh, if I could cuss, I would. Uh, <laughs> Please don't. It, it would. It would. It might. It's just. It's absurd. I mean, but it again. It's part of a pattern that, as a country, we've been sort of, you know, moving towards for a while now. It's like it's to uh, mystify things, to create uh, conspiracy theories. Um, it's about everyone wanting to be uh, sort of a, a rebel and and whatever the. Um, establishment says you have to be counter to it even if it's based upon science or actual facts um, mm -hmm. and so this sort of desire to be contrarian has been an, a part of our development or devolution as a society for a while so it doesn't surprise me but i would have thought given what we actually see in front of us that people would uh, get it and so my reaction is it's more of the same it's kind of depressing uh it's how much contact do you have with the the mayor's team and with Governor Pritzker's team in relation to how the frontline workers are being served? Great question. So uh, with the governor's folks, uh, we've been, especially during the uh, struggle for a nursing home contract, we were in pretty constant contact with them. Uh, and they, I think they were helpful and wanted to hear more. It's funny, I was just listening to the governor's uh, and he was talking about long-term care. Um, and, you know, so some of the things that we've seen that have changed are, I think, a result of the pressure and the way that we've been in contact with them about things. Because, you know, our members are on the front lines. It's, pop, you know, it's popular to say, but our members truly are on the front lines every single day. Um, and telling us the stories that they're telling us are, are will make your hair you know stand on end. Um, but governor's folks have been open. The mayor's folks have actually spoken with the mayor uh, directly a couple of times. Mm. Um, offered to figure out how she can be supportive. 
Could you ask her to, to get back with us? We would love to have her on the show. You got her number. Call her up and say, Mario told me to ask you. Well, you if, know, uh, that's what's... I can do that. But the le- legislators have been great, too. I mean, it's whether, I mean, we've had outdoor press conferences with workers, right. where they wanted to put letters out. We've gotten really positive support from a lot of our elected officials, some of whom are still trying to figure out, like, what to do themselves, right? Um mm-hmm. But have offered, have lended their own personal support, and 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 as they go back to Springfield, apparently next week, uh, we'll probably look to do legislative support as well. I gotta ask really quick before I pass the mic to Michaela. Mm-hmm. On Tuesday, the Blue Angels flew over Chicago to support and salute the first line workers, and it was a moment of just civic pride as the Blue Angels flew over my building scaring what would be called in other circles everything in my body out of it and just all oh, the blue angels they flew over and it, it, it in my early vision of it i was like if they're trying to salute the frontline workers and those frontline workers are at work they're not going to see the blue angels fly what was your basic take on the idea of that happening not that it wasn't beautiful because it was but to hear war machines flying over Chicago on Tuesday afternoon or Tuesday morning, essentially, was very disheartening in some ways. And the idea of them saluting people who were working, <laughs> some of them unable to see this event, blows my mind. So what did you think about it? My reaction was very similar to yours. Uh but because I try to give little space to that kind of energy, I didn't let it take me where I, where it could have, which is that money could have <laughs> spent somewhere else. Um, a whole yeah. bunch of other things. Like there are actual ways we can demonstrate solidarity with frontline workers. Um, but uh, you know, I'm not gonna say it's a waste. I'm sure some folks. Might. Um, do you feel like the city's response in terms of um, public transportation? Um, that that we've got enough um, safety nets engaged for those people who have to get up and go to work every day. Do we have that? How do you? What are your workers doing? What are your folks? What are the recourses when they feel unsafe? Yes, yeah, so, so there's a lot there. So I think the first thing is your your point is spot on. Uh, we know now that upwards of fifty percent of COVID uh, cases are somehow connected to a long-term care facility in Illinois. Nationally, it's roughly the same, you know, like 40-something percent. We know that one out of three deaths nationally are somehow connected to a long-term care facility. Uh, so who's, who are the folks working in long-term care facilities? Who are the residents of long-term care facilities? Um, and so there's no question that uh, black folks and, and Latinos, immigrant workers too, uh, more broadly, are disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 simply because of the way they have to take care of themselves to survive, to eat. Um, and so, again, this is not new, right? Our, our members are often relegated to public transportation. I always tell people, like, if you want to know about the folks, people think about unions, they think about hard hats and and we love hard hats and all that stuff. But if you drive around the south side of Chicago and you see someone in some scrubs, 
waiting at the bus stop, there's a good chance that she's a nursing home worker, right? And may or may not be one of my members, right? But those are the kinds of people that have been overlooked for so many years. COVID-19, again, has just ripped uh, the bandage off of it. Um, so to the point, uh, no question, our folks are getting sick because of the jobs that they have. And um, we need to do more to protect them. I think the city of Chicago, it's a multi-decade issue and problem, so I don't expect them to fix it right away. But I do think through the union, like the ATU, the transit workers unions, um, they're making the arguments, right? You need more PPE. They're advocating on behalf of their members. And in doing so, they're actually doing a public service, helping us keep uh, the rest of the public uh, healthier as well. So to me, we just need to listen to people that are in organized labor, that are doing the work on the front lines, because they can tell you stuff uh, in ways that other people can. Craig, I just wanted to follow up on that. And you, you mentioned that you've gotten a good response from politicians. Has the image of service workers changed to these people because of COVID-19? Because it seems that that people in, in the various industries that we now think of as essential for so long were viewed as inessential or inconsequential. And now we're in the midst of a major life-threatening, life-changing event. And it seems that your workers right now are the people who are on the front line. Has that changed at all, the conversations you're having with politicians? And has it finally maybe brought some of the things that you were always talking with your membership about to kind of the front of the table? I, I would say to an extent, and I think we'd also add the media into that as well. Um, so we were on the verge of going on a strike with our nursing home members, about 10,000 nursing home workers. We gave notice for 44 homes. We were going to do, we did 20 more homes and we were leading up to all uh, 10,000 workers going on strike. And the amount of attention that was given to that was, was unbelievable. I mean, it was a, it became an, an international story, right? We were getting calls from German uh, outlets. Uh, and then of course it became a national story as well as here in Chicago, because everyone started then to see these are the workers that we need to be hearing from. Um, but just like anything, right, I see that our job is to continue to press the case uh, because things fall in and out of favor very quickly um, in our you know, microwave society. And so that's why I say our union now is more important than ever, because we've been advocating that our members are heroes and heroines for a long, long time. Um, but it was COVID-19 that made people see it. So we have to continue to do it. Um, and so people say it, you know, to your question, to your question, people say that they see those workers now, um, but I think it's up to all of us to make sure that it isn't just rhetoric and that people follow through. Because as I said, we, we, I said, we achieved a decent agreement with nursing homes. We got hazard pay, we got extended sick, we did some good things, um, but this crisis doesn't end because we got a collective bargaining right? Because people got paid uh, a bit more. The crisis is going to continue. We need to make sure that they are in the forefront of, of uh, finding solutions to it.
if you can hear this, if you can hear this, you're listening to WLPN 105.5 FM, Chicago. The following are spontaneous compositions recorded live at the Center for Search and Research. Here are a couple selections from a trio comprised of Brian Dua, Corey Albert, and Michael Newhouse. Enjoy. Chuck Mertz spoke with Lucas Corner, who reports on a failed coup attempt in Venezuela involving U.S. mercenaries. The coup attempt, which has been tied to Trump, is comical in its details. Did the White House really back this attempt on Nicolas Maduro's government? Find out on This Is Hell every Sunday and Thursday at 10 a.m. What is the U.S. viewing audience missing about their understanding of their government and its foreign policy when it simply is not being told on the major corporate news, media, TV outlets that mercenaries from the U.S. tried to overthrow Venezuela? Indeed, I think that that what I found from the response was that, you know, certainly is that, in fact, it was more just that we're kind of trying to make this out to be a joke. I mean, the that this was some kind of, uh, you know, this is this is a knockoff of the Bay of Pigs and all of your, you know, typical liberal imperialist uh, pundits and outlets were, were were making hay of this. But I mean, this is an extremely serious affair that I mean, certainly, yes, it, it was a pathetic failure. Um, but you know, what, what, what did uh, Goudreau, he's a former, Jordan Goudreau is a former uh, U.S. Special Forces uh, uh, veteran from Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, the chicken's coming home to roost who decides to, you know, set up this mercenary outfit. I mean, this is obviously this, this, this tendency towards the privatization of war and just how this, the institutionalized culture of utter criminal lawlessness on the part of the U.S. imperial state kind of inexorably drives towards these kinds of incidents. And, you know, what did Goudreau tell the Washington Post uh, yesterday? Quote, this isn't a wartime action. This is a policing action, he said. The world recognizes one guy, why though, as president, so they hired me to arrest the other people who has usurped power, the other person who usurped power, Nicolas Maduro. I mean, this is, he is a following what, the imperial consensus, what the, you know, Trump's coalition of the willing has said is the right thing to do, that according to the, this coalition of the willing, that is Trump and basically the U.S. and it's basically it's uh, imperial lackey states in Europe and uh, its clients in uh, South America and Latin America, is that, you know, uh, Guaido, this person who never won you know, more than 90,000 votes in his life, is the president of Venezuela, and uh, the, despite having no power whatsoever. And you know, th- this, this operation is designed to taking out Maduro, who won 6.2 million votes in 2018. In fact, won, uh, the same, won 31% of the total electorate, which is about is more than Trump won in 2016, and is more, is more than Obama, the same as Obama in 2008, and more than 2012. So, I mean, this is utterly absurd, but it's exactly the, the U.S. recognition of this of this puppet, you know, who has no, you know, the unprecedented move to do this because this is the first time the United States has ever 
recognized a a leader of a government that has no control over the state since it recognized uh, de Gaulle as president of France during World War II, despite him not being controlled, despite the Vichy government still being in power. So, I mean, this is an absolutely, uh, you know, it's a move that is only designed to, you know, for, for a long-term siege and these kinds of uh, mercenary actions, which, you know, this one being, you know, a farce, but we can imagine, you know, much more. I mean, they sought to kidnap Maduro they, or even kill him in the process. I mean, this is this is an extremely serious affair, and we can we can anticipate more of these kinds of actions as long as the United States continues its its criminal effort to oust an elected government just because it doesn't agree its its interests are against those of the Venezuelan people. So do you think this was an attempt at being an overthrow of the government, or do you think this was more just a case of bounty hunters who were trying to get the $15 million reward that the United States and the DEA had put on Nicolas Maduro's head for allegedly being involved in drug trafficking? Do you think this was driven by greed, by profits, or do you think this was driven by some sort of misguided patriotism? I think it was clearly driven by both. I mean, like I said, this guy was a veteran of the U.S. imperial wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. So you have to be pretty uh, screwed up in the head, you know, after you know going through this. So clearly, there was you know a lot of you know, a pretty demented view of reality that was informing this entire operation. But you're exactly right that you know the U.S. placing this price on Maduro's head is inevitably going to spark these kinds of actions. That you know, moreover, the, you know the Washington Post also revealed that you know it was about money. That you know got what. Gaudreau was going to be promised like something like 14% of the money in a warehouse and something like the the warehouse containing ill-begotten gains of Maduro's inner circle. I mean, it's obviously all completely speculative as is expected from, you know, a imperial outlet like the Washington Post. But I mean, that's the whole, the, the, the point is, this was clearly about a government that was not or a that was never elected right a a basically u.s puppet was that was never elected is green lighting or 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 collaborating with mercenary elements in the united states to kidnap the elected president and then divide up and then repay him for that with money from the venezuelan people i mean this is you know in in what world would this be acceptable if this was happening in the united states in which you know you had a you know mercenary operation that was being you know organized from canada in which you know i don't the russians were going to you know were were you know were going to recognize i don't know nancy pelosi as uh as president of the united states and you know she was you know in in cahoots with you know mercenary elements russian mercenaries that were going to come in and kidnap Trump. In what world would that be acceptable? It wouldn't. But when it comes to Venezuela, the, the, the imperial hubris is unlimited, and this kind of thing is, is par for the course. Just, 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 hey, I, I need them bowl cutters of mine again. Kyle, we've been over this. No bolt cutters until you stop using them uh, to cut the lock off my bicycle. How dare you, Jessica. I wouldn't have to cut the lock if you didn't keep locking it up. Besides, how could I have stolen your bicycle if you still have it? Because all six times I caught you and I took it back. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, God knows what would happen if you got away with it. You don't even know how to ride a bicycle. <sighs> what thievery are you up to now? Jess, I am softened by that remark. If truth be known, I am trying to secure myself gainful employment. With bolt cutters? With 
with what is behind this fence over here on Morgan. Feast your eyes on the rarest of floor finds. Tree saws. This is an active construction site. I, I just saw these guys pop over to Saluri's for lunch. Well, looks like it ain't that active then. Listen, just stand back and let me get to work over here. I have liberated them. Freedom is now mine. I still don't get this. It's very easy, Jess. Pulaski Savings Bank is always needing tree service, and with these tools, I can provide that service. And from that, I can parlay it into some fall-time haggerswaggle. Kyle, you're like 70 years old. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. Tree cutting is arduous work. Are you sure you're physically up for this? I got some million-dollar marketing idea, so just sit back and watch. What are you jokers doing now? Oh, Kyle's trimming trees at the bank. They're giving him 60 bucks. Is he okay? He looks a little pale. Um, I think he might be having a heart attack, actually. Mm, that's just his regular clammy sweat and deathly complexion. You jagoffs can say what you want, but my treeway system is going to change the industry. <laughs> Your what? Yeah, it's my system to gin up business. All over Bridgeport are trees that need trimming. <laughs> Look at this. Look at this sign. How about a treeway? Are you serious? Absolutely. Watch this. Hey, you over there. How about a treeway? Uh, oh, no. <laughs> no, no, no. Hey, how about no. a treeway? A treeway right hey. now. Can it, trucker? <laughs> uh, what's this about, a three-way? You got it, buddy. You're the first for my treeway system. Uh, with, with you and these guys? Uh, I, I'm not involved here. Oh. Oh, no, Jamie. You, you've made him sad. Look how sad he is. That's not very neighborly. How are we going to get this treeway system off the ground if yous don't help at all? Um, hey, this is your bright idea. I'm pretty sure it's against my religion. How is this my this idea? This is your idea because Jesus, you they'll be at it forever. Let's get back leave. to this treeway, Kyle. What exactly is this system? I'm so glad you asked. First, the thrusting. Uh, oh. As we cut across branches... Then there's the flexing. Oh. As we trim the branches, and then the final stroke oh. is to clean up the leaves. <laughs> well, I'm in. Your place or mine. <laughs> I got no trees in my place. That would be ridiculous. How about you just give us your address, and we'll be over soon. I'll be waiting. See, Jess, how easy was that to gin up business? You want to try? Um... Hey, how about a treeway? Treeway, want a treeway with us? Come on, just join in. Wow, so crazy. I have a, a different engagement a at Let's another oh, place. So, Hannah, don't try to pawn that recorder off on me. This week on the Trump Diaries, unemployment hits 23% as Trump rages. Trump libels a TV host, accusing him of murder. Trump tries to distract from his failures by blaming Obama. Republicans shy away from Trump. A judge blocks the attempt to free Michael Flynn. And over 90,000 people have now died in the U.S. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 1205, May 8th. The official U.S. unemployment rate jumped to 14.7%, the worst since the Great Depression and the worst monthly loss on record. The real unemployment rate jumped to 22.8%. The U.S. has lost roughly 21.4 million jobs since the start of the pandemic. 
The Office of Special Counsel said there were reasonable grounds that Dr. Rick Bright was retaliated against for questioning Trump. The office said Bright should be given whistleblower status and immediately returned to his position. Bright was removed after he flagged efforts to fund potentially dangerous drugs promoted by Trump and those with political connections. More than half the states that have started to reopen do not meet the criteria recommended by the White House for resuming business and social activities. States moving forward with the reopening are also now seeing an increase in new coronavirus cases. Trump buried a report from the CDC claiming, quote, it was overly prescriptive. In an alarming reversal, the Justice Department said it will drop the criminal case against Trump's first national security advisor, Michael Flynn. Flynn pled guilty twice to lying to the FBI over his contacts with a Russian ambassador and was convicted of that offense. He recently attempted to reverse his plea. Flynn was fired from the White House after officials there concluded he had lied to them. Trump claimed following the announcement that Flynn was an innocent man and accused Obama administration officials of targeting him. Trump asked the Supreme Court to temporarily block the release of secret Robert Mueller grand jury evidence. In March, a court said the House had a right to see all the evidence. House Democrats have said their investigation into misconduct by Trump is ongoing and that the grand jury material will show if Trump obstructed Mueller's investigation. Evidence is mounting that face masks worn in public may be far more effective at stopping the spread of COVID-19 than previously realized. Even so, public health experts are warning the rush to open states is likely to steeply increase our death toll. Some epidemiological models are now predicting as many as 240,000 Americans could die. Currently, at least 80,000 have perished from the virus. Meanwhile, Trump told a crowd that Americans have, quote, learned the good and the bad about wearing a mask. It's not a one-sided thing, believe it or not. As conspiracy theories continue to circulate about the virus, some of those pushed by Trump, Twitter said it will now add labels to tweets that contain misinformation. Posts that Twitter considers particularly harmful or misleading will be hidden behind a warning label. And Vice President Mike Pence's press secretary tested positive for coronavirus. Also, one of Trump's personal valets has also tested positive for the virus. Day 1206, May 9th. Jerry Kushner's shadow task force bungled the rollout of the distribution of remdesivir, a treatment for COVID-19. Gilead Pharmaceuticals donated hundreds of thousands of doses to the federal government, but 32,000 doses of the drug were shipped to less impacted counties instead of the high-priority hospitals. In response, members of Kushner's team blamed other people. A top Trump donor was named to be the head of the U.S. Postal Service. Louis DeJoy currently runs a private logistics and distribution company from North Carolina. He donated $360,000 to Trump's re-election campaign and $70,000 to Republicans in general. Trump quietly cut funding for coronavirus researcher Peter Dejak, jeopardizing a possible vaccine. The scientist collaborates with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. He had his grant terminated in the wake of unsubstantiated claims that COVID-19 is man-made and leaked out of that lab. And Trump vetoed legislation that would have limited his ability to wage war. Trump called it insulting. The legislation was first introduced in response to Trump's assassination of the Iranian General Qasim Soleimani. Day 1207, May 10th. In a rare critique of a sitting president, President Obama said the decision to drop the prosecution of Michael Flynn puts, quote, our basic understanding of rule of law at risk. There is no precedent that anyone can find for somebody who's been charged with perjury just getting off scot-free. Obama then called Trump's handling of the pandemic, quote, an absolute chaotic disaster and anemic. 
In response, Trump spent the entire Mother's Day sending 126 tweets about the Russia investigations by the FBI and the House Intelligence Committee. Sending a tweet every seven minutes, Trump then started off with Happy Mother's Day and then pivoted to a lengthy screed on what he called Obamagate, attacking 60 Minutes, Jimmy Kimmel, and for some reason, Chuck Todd. Using the pandemic as cover, Stephen Miller is attempting to expand immigration restrictions. Miller has floated banning H-1B visas, which are designed for highly skilled workers, and H-2B visas for seasonal migrant workers, as well as all student visas. Miller has long looked to suspend entire visa categories. It has been reported that Jared Kushner's task force turned down an offer to manufacture millions of N95 masks in America in the earliest days of the pandemic. Production lines with the capability of making more than 7 million masks a month now sit dormant. And Trump shouted down a nurse who had called the supply of PPE sporadic but manageable at her New Orleans hospital, adding she had worn the same mask for a week. Trump talked over her claiming it was, quote, sporadic for you, but not sporadic for a lot of other people, and then claimed the country was now loaded up with a tremendous supply to almost all places. Trump finished by saying her comments were fake news. Trump then said he didn't wear a mask during a tour of a mask production facility because, quote, I didn't need it, and it would send the wrong message because it would seem like he is focusing on health instead of reopening the nation's economy. Day 1208, May 11th. Three of the United States' top health officials have begun quarantine for two weeks after coming in contact with people who tested positive for COVID-19. Trump's valet and Vice President Mike Pence's press secretary both tested positive, leading to fears the entire executive branch has now been exposed. Multiple members of the Secret Service have also tested positive. U.S. deaths are now approaching 90,000 from the virus and accelerating. In response, the White House encouraged staffers to come into the office, including aides who travel with Trump and Pence. Trump expressed concern that aides contracting coronavirus undercut his message that the outbreak was waning and states should begin reopening. Later at a press conference, Trump claimed, quote, we have prevailed over the coronavirus. Trump later said that he meant the U.S. had prevailed only in creating enough testing capacity for Americans. Behind Trump were a row of flags and a pair of giant signs that read, America leads the world in testing. This is actually false. Trump suddenly ended his press conference after he told an Asian American journalist to ask China. Weijia Jiang of CBS News asked Trump why he sees coronavirus testing as a global competition when more than 80,000 Americans have died. Trump replied, maybe that's a question you should ask China. Don't ask me, ask China that question. Trump then called it a nasty question. When Jiang responded by saying, why are you saying that to me specifically, Trump abruptly left the Rose Garden. Trump attempted to begin a sweeping investigation of President Obama, claiming falsely that Obama acted illegally when the Justice Department began probing incoming National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. Calling it the, quote, biggest political crime in American history, Trump claimed falsely that Obama got caught and then retweeted a photo of himself with the caption, hope you had fun investigating me, now it's my turn. When asked what crime Obama allegedly committed, Trump replied, you know what the crime is. The crime is very obvious to everybody. All you have to do is read the newspapers. Obamagate has become a staple of Fox News. It appears to be as complex as a professional wrestling storyline and actually makes no sense on the face of it. Nearly 2,000 current and former Justice Department employees called on William Barr to step down, saying in an open letter he had, quote, once again assaulted the rule of law by moving to drop the case against Michael Flynn. Day 1209, May 12th. Several leaders of the federal coronavirus response warned a Senate panel that the U.S. did not have control over the pandemic. 
The head of the CDC and Dr. Anthony Fauci said the nation was moving too quickly to reopen the economy. Both men also conceded testing was not where it needed to be, with just 400,000 tests processed in a single day. The safe number for the U.S. to reopen would be 3 million tests a day. Fauci added that the death toll is almost certainly higher than official counts. He dismissed the notion that a vaccine would be available by the time schools reopen in the fall, calling it, quote, a bit of a bridge too far. There's no guarantee that the vaccine is actually going to be effective. Nationally, Los Angeles now looks like it will not be able to reopen until deep into July. The Supreme Court heard more than three hours of arguments on whether House committees and prosecutors may obtain information about Trump's business affairs. Trump has argued he is, quote, absolutely immune from prosecution. The House is investigating allegations that Trump inflated and deflated descriptions of his assets on financial statements to obtain loans and reduce his tax burden. New York is investigating hush money payments made to several women. Lower courts have all ruled against Trump. Trump accused MSNBC host Joe Scarborough of murder. Apparently referencing the 2001 death of Lori Klatsudis, who worked as a staffer in Scarborough's Fort Walton Beach office when he was a Republican lawmaker, Trump tweeted, quote, when will they open a cold case on the psycho Joe Scarborough matter in Florida? Did he get away with murder? Some people think so. Why did he leave Congress so quietly and quickly? Isn't it obvious? What's happening now? A total nut job. Trump's accusations are libelous and utterly false. Patsudis' autopsy revealed she had an undiagnosed heart condition. She died after passing out and hitting her head in a fall. Scarborough was also in Washington, D.C. at the time of her death, not Florida. House Democrats moved closer to passing a $3 trillion economic relief measure to respond to the pandemic. The package includes $1 trillion in aid to state, local, and tribal governments, another round of $1,200 direct payments to families, and more money for jobless aid and food assistance. The measure would also provide a $25 billion bailout for the U.S. Postal Service. Senate Republicans have so far refused to discuss the measure. Day 1,210, May 13th. The Fed Chair Jerome Powell warned Congress the U.S. was facing an economic hit without modern precedent, which could permanently damage our economy. Powell said Congress must provide financial and policy support to prevent a wave of bankruptcies and long-term unemployment. So far, only House Democrats have made a move toward additional financial support. Powell's comments spooked investors. The S&P 500 fell 2%. The federal judge overseeing the criminal case of Michael Flynn said he was not ready to drop that conviction. Judge Emmett Sullivan said he would schedule for outside parties to present arguments about the government's request to dismiss that case. The Justice Department dropped the case against Flynn, claiming the convicted perjurer never should have been charged. That decision has been harshly criticized as corrosive to the rule of law. Also, it was revealed that a key former FBI official undercut the DOJ's case for dropping the criminal charges. Bill Priestap, the former head of FBI counterintelligence, told DOJ investors that media reports incorrectly summarized his notes. He added there was no effort to set up Flynn, but DOJ officials did not tell Judge Sullivan about that interview. Trump pushed the CDC to change its methodology for how it counts coronavirus deaths in the hopes that totals will go down. Trump has repeatedly claimed that coronavirus deaths are inflated to make him look bad. In fact, death tolls appear to have been undercounted. By one model counting so-called excess deaths, the United States has already passed 100,000 in total. Nervous Republicans are trying to back away from an increasingly unmanageable Trump. Polls show you slipping badly due to his pandemic response. Trump has lost major ground with over 65 voters. He's trailing Joe Biden by as many as 10 points in key battleground states. Mitch McConnell claimed former President Obama, quote, should have kept his mouth shut. 
McConnell admitted the fact that the president's comments about Trump, in which he described Trump's handling of the pandemic crisis as a chaotic disaster, came in a private call that was leaked. McConnell also claimed Obama had not left behind, quote, any kind of game plan for dealing with a pandemic. That drew swift ridicule. Obama actually left behind a 69-page pandemic playbook that Trump willfully ignored. He also slashed the two departments that Obama had set up to deal with viral outbreaks. New research shows the protests to reopen the nation are largely being funded and organized by a handful of far-right PACs. The protests, which have not caught on but are being exhaustively covered by Fox and other right-wing media, appear to be funded by the Mercer family, a major Republican donor, and are an attempt to re-energize Trump's base of support. More Americans are going hungry as the pandemic spreads with a fourfold increase in food stamp applications. However, Trump's Department of Agriculture is looking to trim its roles. They want to kick 700,000 people off the SNAP program despite the growing hardship. Grocery store prices have jumped by at least 6%, the largest spike in 50 years. Sodas jumped by nearly 11%, while dairy and meat, both facing shortages, jumped by at least 5% nationally. Wisconsin Supreme Court struck down the stay-at-home order ruling that Governor Tony Evers overstepped when he extended that order through the end of May. The suit was brought by Republican lawmakers who have not offered an alternative. Public polls show that Wisconsin residents overwhelmingly support Evers' actions. Fed seized a cell phone belonging to a prominent Republican senator as part of an investigation into stock trades. Senator Richard Burr of North Carolina, who is also the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, turned over his phone to the FBI after being served a warrant. Burr dumped millions of dollars in stock after receiving a classified briefing on coronavirus in January. Three Republican senators dumped stock under suspicious circumstances earlier this year. Day 1211, May 14th. Three million more people filed for unemployment benefits last week, bringing the total to 36.5 million in the past eight weeks. The real unemployment rate is now around 25%. It is higher in many metro areas. And in a remarkable move, U.S. District Judge Emmett Sullivan asked John Gleason, a former federal judge in New York, to present arguments in the case of the prosecution of Michael Flynn. Sullivan also signaled that Flynn should face an additional criminal contempt charge for perjury. Flynn had testified under oath he was guilty of lying to the FBI, but then reversed course and said he never lied. Sullivan said he wanted Gleason to make the case for why a motion to dismiss the Flynn case filed by the DOJ should be rejected. Gleason had penned an article in the Washington Post arguing that the case was deeply flawed. A U.S. appeals court rejected Trump's effort to end the lawsuit, alleging his ownership of a hotel in Washington violates emoluments clauses. The decision in the Fourth Circuit was a victory for attorneys general in Maryland and D.C., who alleged Trump is accepting payments from foreign governments illegally. The federal judge overseeing the criminal case against Roger Stone also ordered Trump to turn over 20 emails related to the White House's order to halt military aid to Ukraine that led to Trump's impeachment. Judge Amy Berman Jackson ruled in favor of a motion for summary judgment filed by the New York Times and ordered the White House to provide emails that the Office of Management and Budget refused to turn over, citing executive privilege. Trump criticized his own top pandemic advisor for testifying in front of the Senate that schools may not be able to reopen. I was surprised by Fauci's answer. To me, it's not an acceptable answer, especially when it comes to schools. He wants to play all sides of the equation, said Trump, before claiming that the economy next year would be phenomenal. Jared Kushner said he could not rule out the presidential election would be postponed. I'm not sure I can commit one way or the other, but right now that's the plan. 64% of Americans say opening the country now is not worth the risk to human life. 
55% of Americans said they plan to get vaccinated against COVID-19 and also 55% disapprove of the protests against reopening the country. 60% of Americans now disapprove of Trump's handling of the pandemic. These are the Trump Diaries. Studio A has been closed due to the pandemic. Please enjoy this brand new track from the Search and Research Trio. This is Menehune. It was engineered by Corey Elberton at Studio C.
It's, it, I mean, it's completely and entirely obvious what is hap- what is happening here. I mean, what we're seeing out here is we're seeing uh, we're seeing gangs of individuals who have been infected with various strains of of Malo Twenty One. Um, and I mean, what is, what is what is happening is uh, that they are fighting over people and territory. Um, once you get one of the more vicious strains of Malo 21, you are effectively immune from all other strains. Um, I've submitted several survival casts um, to the various survivors um, wandering around Chicago, um, informing them of this, and, and I've been using this aspect to make a number of plans. Um, but, I mean, the, the even more so than the disease, what we're fighting against are these these groups of individuals that are infected with the disease who are uh, one by one taking territory from Chicago and these in these territorial uh, these, these territorial main states the, the the groupings the the combinations of areas that these organizations are are you know taking and settling into are primarily um, centered around these guy five towers there's about there's about uh, uh, there's about 30 33 or 34 I mean I'm always finding new ones but I, I there are 34 known towers throughout all of Chicago um, and uh, once a once a group sort of takes hold of a single tower they do a considerable amount of work in modifying it and then uh, and then you know building building it up for some reason and in a sense it seems like they're competing for this this technical uh, uh, I mean I mean the, the, this this technical asset um, that they could use um, to conduct a number of you know uh, very very modern warfare methods. I would say, as they fight for territory, um, what the end goal is, I can only speculate on. But I do have quite a number of uh, quite a, a, an amount of speculation. What you heard a little while ago was um, was one of the uh, what I believe to be the uh, the the identifying sound of uh, the the transport the transport methods. Those being uh, uh, just modified modified technical motorcycles uh by a group of um of of virus holders um with a strain uh with a strain known as uh, known as uh, the the strain invictus broadcast every Saturday, 8 to 9 the Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shannon Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.